for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I'm sitting down with Tom Nolan, who's been CEO of Kendra Scott since 2021. Tom has held leadership roles at Ralph Lauren and Condé Nast, so I wanted to ask him what drew him to the 21-year-old Austin-based jewelry company. I also wanted to inquire about the brand's unique physical retail play. It seems the more stores and events, the better. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Tell me about your background with the brand. Did you know Kendra before you joined the company? I know that you were president prior to becoming CEO, correct? Yeah, that's right. I was, well, I actually originally joined the company as a member of the board of directors almost uh, almost nine years ago now. So and then uh, joined the company in an operating capacity as chief marketing, chief revenue officer, and then president, and then ultimately CEO. Oh my gosh. Well, I know you're on boards of several apparel brands, retail brands. Uh, what about Kendra Scott made you want to <laughs> sign on in a more official capacity? Well, it wasn't my passion for women's jewelry because uh, <laughs> outside of um, outside of buying it for my daughters and women in my life, I, I, I didn't have a passion for it, but I immediately fell in love with the business um, and as quickly fell in love with the with the people, primarily Kendra and the, the mission that she built 21 years ago of, of doing good in the world and putting a goalpost down on the ground of really helping people and philanthropy. And it, it really drew me to the organization. And uh, when I joined the company as a member of the board of directors, it was still a relatively small business. And a couple of years, really short years later, it became a, a very big business valued at more than a billion dollars. And at that point, Kendra asked me to join the company full time. And in, in full disclosure, I wasn't really interested in moving my family to Texas. I was living on the East Coast. I'm from New York originally. And um, Texas might as well have been you know, Jupiter for as, as, as far as I was concerned. I hadn't spent a lot of time there. And being in the middle of the country, just for a lot of reasons, just didn't appeal to me. And um, I mentioned earlier, philanthropy is really important in the organization, and it's one of our pillars and core pillars. And uh, before I made up my mind to you know, d- decide to join the company full-time or not, Kendra asked me to go to a Kendra Cares event uh, that the company was doing in New York. And what Kendra Cares is, is that it's a philanthropic arm of basically we take our color bar, which is when we create your own product in, in one of our, any of our 133 stores, and we bring it to hospitals and businesses and schools and anywhere we can to, to help. And this one in particular uh, that I went to, for the, and it was the first time I'd gone to one, was at Sloan Kettering's Pediatric Oncology Ward. And um, you know, I have four children. I had never been in a pediatric oncology ward as a dad, thankfully, and hope to never be in one. But uh, I was not looking forward to going because I'm a pretty emotional person. I, mean, I, I cry in the movies and... Um, you know, sad commercials. And when I leave my daughter in college and, uh, anyway, I didn't, I didn't want to go and embarrass the families and, and, and myself truthfully. So I begrudgingly went, I was in New York for a board meeting for another company I serve on the board of, and remember getting in the elevator, went upstairs and was kind of dreading it, honestly. And, uh, the elevator doors open and I, I couldn't believe it was in front of me. It was like the happiest place in the world. There were clowns and balloons and, you know, we had a DJ and I made color bar product for sick kids and their parents and siblings and grandparents and family relatives and stuff. And I held it together for the three hours that I was there. And I, um, I wound up leaving, going down, held it together, went up getting back in the elevator, going downstairs, went across the street and lost it. Uh, I called my family and just said, Hey, look, we're, we got to move to Austin. I'm never going to be able to have an impact and touch people in a way on a one-to-one basis like I did today in an organization and also conduct 
business. And that, that ultimately was the, you know, outside of Kendra being an amazing human being, the team that we had here being amazing and just a spectacular business. It was really that point on, um, the good that we could do in the world, the impact that I could have hopefully in a small way. And that's what led me to the company ultimately. I love that story. And Hey, who says fashion is frivolous? (laughs) I feel like to, um, to meet Kendra is to to love Kendra, but mm-hmm. like also my my best memory or a strong memory that I have with the brand is they, um, I was invited at one point to attend, I guess it's the annual, a big breast cancer foundation benefit. I mean, David Foster performed and I sat at the Kendra Scott table and I know that you guys do that every year. And was that the one out in the Hamptons? It wasn't. It was in New York. Okay. Um, it was a couple of years back, but Oh my God. I was just, I'm, I was like, this company is fantastic. A lot of talk of the philanthropy that the company does always. Tell me about that because obviously in the last three years, every company is trying to show their values, prove they're doing it in an authentic way. This has always been a part of the brand from day one. Yeah. And tell me about the balance of growing to become this, again, valued at a billion dollars um, yeah. company and, and being able to do so much giving. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, first of all, I think it's great that companies are moving to where we've always been because I do think it's really important to give back. I think ESG has played a large part of that for publicly traded companies, at least, and DE&I councils and everything else. So I'm, I'm glad that more um, for-profit organizations are moving moving to that place because it's the right place to be. Um you know, like I said, when Kendra started this business, it, it is, and you mentioned it, Jill, she's an amazing human being. It's a force of nature, a great person. And she started the business 21 years ago with $500 out of the spare bedroom of her house. But it wasn't to, to, to build a great big business. It was to help people is kind of the impetus for it in the beginning. And, you know, she also liked nice jewelry, but at the time couldn't afford nice things because she didn't have any money. And th- th- those were all the kind of the white space and the reasons for it. Um, so, we, you know, we've been doing it from the very beginning and philanthropy's always been at the center of everything we do. And truthfully, it's, it's most of the, I think almost every employee that works here, it's our why. Um, and we do it in a really special way. We do it in a one-to-one way. And I think a lot of organizations, organizations I've worked at before certainly have helped larger, whether it's Susan G. Komen or Breast Cancer Awareness or, you know, American Red Cross, there's a lot of great organizations that need help. Our approach has always been going into local communities where we have stores and a presence and helping people on a one-to-one basis. And I think, you know, we did that because Kendra always wanted to have something to give with a focus on women and children specifically. But what it ultimately led to was a, a really deep, deep, deep connection with individuals and local communities and, and all the places that we have stores. And like our stores and our retail team are amazing they're at the tip of the spear for what we do. And last year we did 130, 128 stores. We did over 20,000 events. And we will we will certainly eclipse that and exceed that this year. But every one of those events was helping a singular person most of the time in a community at one of our stores or outside of one of our stores, but all congregated around the stores. So I think the connection we make with individuals is is unlike anything I've ever seen before. And what it leads to from a business perspective is a deep connection, you know, things like really high NPS scores, like off the chart NPS scores, because people want to recommend us to others because there's memories created in in what we do and how we do it. And I think 
you know, subjectively, our product, I believe, has a higher value proposition than most. And I think it's more beautiful than most. But at the end of the day, uh, I think it's the connection that we make with the customer that has keeps her and him coming back. I don't know if we did a case study on on Kendra Scott and your event um, activations or strategy, or maybe somebody sp- also, I think both, someone spoke at, our, at one of our events about it. But um, yes, am I correct? If you can break down that strategy, there's probably, I think there is a head of events at every store yeah, and about that's right. how many, how many events are happening and um, you're 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 working with tastemakers, local influentials to work with their charity partner. Exactly. Do I have it right? Yeah, Go yeah. Ahead. That's that, that. More or less, that's right. And I think yeah. your earlier question about like how do we balance it all? I mean, truthfully, we're we're we have an imbalance in in a focus on philanthropy, and it leads to business, and we're fortunate about that. But I would say we're out of balance in how much attention and time and and effort and resources we pour into philanthropy and give back. Um, and you're right. And every one of our stores has an event contact. We have um, marketing and philanthropic marketing managers in each market specifically, and they're getting to know people in the communities and making it a place where people feel like they can walk into one of our stores, reach out to our organization in any capacity just to to say, hey, look, I need help. Right. And it doesn't have to be even a sick person. It could be, you know, a, a spouse loses a job or somebody's just in need. We, we just we want to help people in any way possible. So we look at philanthropy as an organization a little bit differently. And we built an organization, the company really around that. So we have a head of philanthropy who has done a phenomenal job of building out the Kendra Scott Foundation and everything else that we're doing. And then each store specifically has event people tied to philanthropy. And then each market, regional markets have uh, marketing and philanthropic managers as well. That's amazing. Did you say 120 stores? And well, no, no. Growth? Today, today we have 133 stores, and our 134th store actually opens uh, in three days at the end of this month. So I was referencing last year we had you know yeah. more than 120. We did 20,000 events. Oh my gosh! What's the rollout here? Uh, Ten a year, twenty a year. It you know it depends. We're really opportunistic about it, Jill. Uh, I think in a perfect you know we'll open as many stores as we can. We have a really strong balance sheet as an organization, so we have the ability to do that from a cash flow perspective. But uh, it's all about location and being in markets that we think we can thrive in and really connect with the community. And if that means there's there's twenty prime locations a year for us to do that, we'll open twenty stores. If it means that there's five, we'll open five. If it means there's fifty, we'll do fifty. So. It really depends on you know the market need and appetite and the location that we can get so that we can build these home bases and really event centers and you know uh, relationship creators in those local markets. But we've been aggressively pursuing retail and we've been really bullish on retail. Even through COVID, we were bullish on it. You mentioned that you're in Austin and center of the country. Where are your stores? Um, maybe focused in the South or an even an even scattering across the U.S. Yeah, we ha- so we have, like I said, 130, we'll open 134th store at the end of this month. Um, primarily, when I first joined the organization as a member of the board, we had almost all of our stores were in Texas and surrounding states in Texas. And it remained unknown if we could grow the business the same way that we grew it with community first and philanthropy first in key markets like, you know, the West Coast and the Northeast and the Midwest and the Southeast. Um and now today, our 134 stores are all over the country. I think we're in 35 states total. And our fastest growing region in the country today is the Northeast, which gives me a really nice sense of pride because I'm from there. Um, and, and truthfully, I think we were, we were unsure if we could take the same playbook 
and run those plays and have the business be as effective in markets like the Northeast? Because, and I can say this as a New Yorker, like sometimes New Yorkers are a little jaded. And, uh, you know, it's because you're always wondering, like, what is this really about? And could it, could it be authentic? Could somebody really be that kind and really want to help me out? And um, I was certainly, like, you know, I'm certainly like that to some extent. And the fact that we're doing the same things in markets like the Northeast uh, and we're attracting the, the same type of person with the same level of passion and aspiration for our brand and the business is, is really exciting. But we're growing you know, high double digits in the Northeast and the Midwest and the Southeast and also the West Coast, in addition to continuing to grow in Texas. That's fantastic. And, and the Southwest, yeah. Mm-hmm. Are most of your sales happening in store these days? Uh, so retail makes up 50% of our business today. Uh, e-commerce is 35% and our wholesale business, which is really, and all of them are really important to us, rounds out the remaining 15%. So um, we want to meet the customer. I mean, like one of our tenants um, and operating principles as an organization is that the customer is our boss. And wherever she is, we want to meet her and we want to make sure that she or he has the exact same experience on our website or in one of our wholesale partners as they do in our retail stores. But Retail it has been, over the last several years, the, the the predominant form of how we do commerce, yeah. Tell me about the transition. Am I correct that Kendra held the CEO role and you were the first non-Kendra yeah. <laughs> CEO? And um, yeah, if just making sure that was smooth, is Kendra still involved? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yes. And I, so it's funny, when I look back at my career, I have only like exclusively worked for founders and I've been a founder. And I think there's a very specific mindset um, in, in founder mentality, and there's a great book called the founder's mentality. If you haven't read it, it's, it's worth a read. And it just talks about, and I understand this, you know, someone, especially somebody whose name's on the building and I've worked for two between Ralph Lauren and Kendra. Um, it's like a child, you know, and to give somebody the, the title of chief executive officer, it's, it's basically like giving custody of your child to somebody. And it's not lost on me, the magnitude of that decision, um, and the respect and trust that it requires to do that appropriately. So, you know, it, it, I would say, if I'm being honest, when I came here, I did never expected that title to be given to me. It wasn't part of my expectation or something I was chasing. And I think it was just through earned trust and, and performance in the business that Kendra felt comfortable enough to allow me to give me that great privilege. And the transition has been really smooth and easy because even though my job title has changed a bunch over the last couple of years, I feel like my function hasn't. And that's been you know, a servant to the organization. And I want to be there to help our people. And I work for them. And I never really feel like anybody ever works for me. Um, and Kendra, to answer your question, is she involved? Like, hi, very involved. Like, hyper-involved. Her name's on the building. Uh, and she sees this very much as a family business. And she's involved in all things philanthropy, all things customer-related, obviously all things design. And, you know, she's a great, our greatest asset, I would say. Uh, as an organization. And, you know, she's become a great, great friend. I, I had a sister who passed away 14 years ago and she's kind of filled that surrogate role for me um, selfishly. And it's been a great relationship. And, and the results from the business perspective have been there to to boot, which is nice. That's amazing. I mean, like we talked about, you have this very robust <laughs> um, resume happening here. Um, what can you tell me about maybe your past roles, whether it was at Ralph Lauren or others that maybe, you know, you, you're able to bring this unique perspective that's really valuable to this role. Um, what can you tell me? Yeah, you've you learned that it has proven valuable. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think I've learned I'm not a, a, afraid to ever admit mistakes and I've made a lot of them over the years. And I think you learn the most through your mistakes um, first and foremost. And I think, you know, 
the places I've gone where I've had management roles, I've kind of entered those businesses without knowing anything about the businesses. I went from the publishing into the publishing industry first. I didn't know anything about it. So I was always really curious. I'd ask a lot of questions and find people smarter than me and not be afraid to say I didn't know the answer. And then from there, I went to the apparel industry and knew outside of wearing clothes and buying them, I knew, I knew nothing about the apparel industry. And, and same, I had great mentors and resources like Ralph and Roger Farrell that I could lean into and I would ask questions. And I think I wasn't afraid to show vulnerability. And I think to some extent that's, that's endearing, you know, when somebody's afraid, not afraid to be authentic and humble. And then when I went from the apparel industry to the um, jewelry accessories business, I knew nothing about it. And also walked into a world where, you know, the business when I first joined Kendra was 99% female, which is not something I was accustomed to. And, you know, had to be really vulnerable. And um, I think learning the lessons along the way that it's okay to ask questions, it's okay to fail, it's okay um, to show your heart uh, allowed me to be successful at, at this organization. And, you know, I think, you know, you are your circumstances. And I worked for some people over the years and I didn't like the way they made me feel, you know, and I always said if, if, um, if I ever worked in a position, I was fortunate enough to have that great privilege to be a leader. I wanted to make people feel heard and seen and involved in the process. And I always wanted to be a servant leader and, you know, never work for somebody that told me what to do, but I want to be the kind of person to ask somebody's opinion the same way the great leaders I did work for asked of me. And, and, um, I think having that, you know, listener learner's heart, I think was really helpful and hopefully has allowed me to, if I'm doing a good job, it's, it's been partially because of that at least. Yes. I think potentially for the first time your customer is primarily women. <laughs> tell me about who the customer is. And also I have to tell you, we wrote about it. <laughs> I think it was after you were CEO for probably a couple of months and Kendra Scott received much buzz around Bama Rush. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's definitely, I mean, college girls, young, young women. Um, but yeah, who's the customer? You know, the, it's, 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 a, it's a hard but also easy question to answer, Jill. Our question is everybody. I mean, our customer is everybody. We, um, first of all, 20% of our customers are male. So, you know, and, and most of them, I would say, at least historically, have been from a gift-giving perspective. Kendra Scott's an amazing gift-giving uh, destination because we have a really high-value proposition, and the product's beautiful, and and people are happy to receive it. And especially now that we've launched fine jewelry and demi-fine jewelry, I think it's given us a lot of different categories for people to get excited about giving gifts. On the on the female gender perspective, it it is a very wide birth of, of constituents, you know, on one hand, my 14 year old daughter is a core customer. Um, her 18 year old sister is a core customer. Their mom is a core customer. And my mom is a core customer. It makes it hard when I had a marketing function and Michelle Peterson, our CMO. And I talk about this a lot, like it's hard to target because, you know, marketing to a 14 year old and an 80 year old, or obviously there's two different mediums to be able to do that. My mom's not a big TikTok fan, obviously, or maybe not, it's not obvious, but she's not, but my 14 year old is. So the, the, the neat thing about that is all four of them can be in the same room wearing the exact same item and nobody looks ridiculous. And I think there's probably four or five brands on earth that you can say that about. We have a 14-year-old, a 40-year-old, an 18-year-old, and an 80-year-old in a room together all wearing the same thing and nobody looks silly. Um, so our core customer is, uh, you know, 20% of them are men, but the 80% that aren't, I think, are women that go through all points in their life, whether it's 
graduating high school, getting into a sorority, getting married and outfitting your wedding party, you know, your first job, you know, your first baby. So it's like we, we want to be on the journey with our customers all throughout their lives. Another reason why we launched Demi Fine and Fine Jewelry was to keep keep those customers in our stable versus having them leave us uh, over the years. And it's, it's served us really well. When did you launch Demi and Fine Jewelry? Fine, uh, fine, fine Jewelry was... Uh, 2016 Demi Fine Jewelry was 2019, so it's been a couple of years now. And we just launched Engagement last year, which has been a huge success. We launched Watches two years ago, which has been a success. So it's we're, we're trying to really talk to our customers in all facets of their lives. I mean, you already have a large customer base. Was that largely who was buying into this new category? I just feel like we talk about on Glossy time and time again that it's easier to be a high-end brand and to you know do something on a smaller Small, on the smaller end, maybe a collab, but to go from a lower end to a higher end, I mean. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, the, his, the historically, you go, you, what they'd say is you can always go down the ladder. It's hard to go up the ladder, right? Um, and we've proven, we've proven that's not entirely true. So I think our lowest hanging, anytime we launch something that is a, a, a stretch to some extent where the price points are elevated, um, it, we always start with our core customers because they're familiar with the brand. They know what we stand for. They know the quality quantification of our of our products, et cetera. And I think what we saw was certainly a large percentage of the immediate customers when we launched Demi Fine Jewelry, when we launched Fine Jewelry, when we launched watches, when we launched engagement, and we're targeting those people very specifically. That's always kind of the first step. But the second step is our value proposition is the same, whether we sell an engagement ring, you know, a pair of diamond earrings, an engravable Demi Fine piece, or a fashion jewelry. And we want people to feel like they're getting a lot for their money. And it serves us really well as an organization through bumpy economies. And what we saw in the fourth quarter last year, which is really the first time we saw this, and we were strategically launched this business for a reason, hoping we'd see this, was I think people, when the economy was great, that stretched into higher-end brands, whether it was Tiffany or David Durman or Phil in the blank, like great brands that are seen as ultra-premium, that that was a stretch for. We saw people... That have a passion for wearing fine jewelry, but were uncomfortable spending very high price points that kind of traded down into as great quality product, but much lower price point in Kendra Scott. And I think we did that really successfully. So we attracted new customers through a lot of, a lot of those things as well. And, you know, the reality is, Jill, even though our company has become as big as it is now, having 134 stores being valued at more than a billion dollars, still less than 10% of the entire U.S. population knows who we are when we do brand awareness studies. So the runway ahead and opportunity we have ahead of us is is truly remarkable. Well, you talked about you didn't change your approach to stores during the height of the pandemic. We've heard from different jewelry brands. Maybe people are buying jewelry because during the pandemic, they wanted to look cute on Zoom. But what was your experience? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we, we saw we saw the same, you know, we saw a, a lift that everybody saw through, you know, digital our digital business for sure. When there were many of our, re- all of our retail stores, in fact, were closed at one point. Um, and I think jewelry, you know, predisposes it to that. Obviously, um, you know, on Zoom, I can see your face and your neck and your hands to some extent. So like, it's a, it's an easy way to, to dress up, um, via Zoom if, if you're living in a virtual world. I think the other thing about jewelry in general is that, you know, people buy it for emotional reasons. You know, it's, it's either a gift or you're buying it for yourself to reward yourself or treat yourself. And I think there's just emotional connection to it. Like you, I remember when I got, you know, this watch or a bracelet or, or a wedding ring or those sort of things in a way that I don't remember 
I like the shirt that I'm wearing. I don't really remember exactly when I got it because I'm not emotionally connected to it. Um, so, you know, we, we definitely saw a lift. I think we were fortunate in the sense of regionally where we were located and where most of our stores were through COVID that um, those regions and our stores were able to open faster. And people, as, you know, I'm sure I know that other people have spoken about on this podcast, there's a lot of pent up demand for people to get back out. And now you're seeing this huge resurgence in events and retail and dining and experiences. And I think We've been at the center of that, you know, on purpose, knowing that it was important. But like, as the world's changed to become an experiential world, we, we've been doing it for 20 years. And I think our stores are not just retail destinations. They're experiential centers where people can fall in love with our brand and get to really touch and feel and experience it. And, you know, have a glass of champagne or wine or beer or a glass of water when you're in there. And I think that th- that's not going to go away. I think people realize how painful it was to be kind of cooped up and stuck and miss that social interaction. You know, the, the, the pendulum has swung in a pretty material way back the other way. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of folks don't yet know the brand. What are you doing besides opening stores? Uh, maybe other marketing? Is there a big campaign coming? What else are you doing? You know, we have we have an amazing team. Michelle Peterson has been with us for going on two years now as our chief marketing officer. And we have an amazing marketing team. I'd say it's one of the best assets in the organization of people that are really thoughtful and clever and, and how we're thinking about talking to our customer in new ways Sometimes in the same ways because it's working, reevaluating ways that weren't working, et cetera. So we're constantly doing new things. Um, you know, we had a our first ever last year, you know, buy better gifts campaign, which was targeted at men, which, you know, was I leaned into for sure because the the impetus for that was, you know, a lot a lot of us guys wait till the very last second to buy gifts for people in our lives. And sometimes when you wait that long, it doesn't have quite the meaning. And we did this really funny um spoof on a holiday gifting with Peyton Manning's production firm. And it was, um, you know, a, a, a guy giving his fill in the blank wife, girlfriend, a, a gift. And it was in a little ring box and uh, the whole family was gathered around the holidays. And he was so prideful to give this to her. And she opens up the ring box and inside of it was a, you know, a star has been named after you instead of a, a ring or something actual of, of meaning in there. And it's like such a guy thing to do sometimes. Right. So we, we, we were like, look, just, Go to Kendra Scott and buy better gifts. Um, so we did that. We have some. We have we've had great collaborations and partnerships. We're we're just about to do another Barbie launch uh, partnership with Barbie, which is an amazing brand. We've got some other great partnerships and collabs coming up. And um, you know, we launched Yellow Rose last year, which was a really a new sub brand, which we're super excited about and has had a lot of success. So I think you know we never want to buy a customer because I feel like, you know, we've, there's been massive inefficiencies in digital marketing, which I know a lot of people have spoken about. And, uh, we, we get customers in really meaningful, authentic ways. And I think it allows our customer lifetime value to be higher in the relationship with the customer better. And they're just less transient that way. And that's the good news. The bad news is I think you build up brand awareness over a bit of a longer tail than, than some. Uh, but I think that customer stickiness and the relationship you have with them over the long term serves, pays a really high dividend and serves a great purpose. What can you tell me about customer loyalty? How long are they with you? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we've got a, we've got a really significant database of, you know, several million customers right now. And, and, you know, the beauty of our customers is that they don't, they don't really leave the organization. I mean, they, they stay with us because again, we, a lot of them, so many of our customers enter through events and we see our best customers at the highest lifetime value enter through events because they're they're going and experiencing the brand versus just 
getting it sometimes as a gift or walking into a store without knowing who we are. Like there's, there's just a deep connection. there. Those customers stay with us, stay with us for decades is what we've seen really. Um, but we also have transient customers like everybody does. And, you know, we, we need to always be thinking about reinventing and doing a better job to keep those customers in the, in the, in the, in the family, so to speak. I mean, you mentioned this, but what a perfect gift, like meaningful. And the packaging is like, really good. Yeah. <laughs> Great packaging. Like Q4 is that like many brands, like the it, I guess, revenue driver for the year, or how would you describe how gifting and holidays plays into your success? Yeah, we call it, I mean, I'm a sports guy, so I like to use a lot of sports analogies. We, you know, we call the fourth, really we call the holiday season our Super Bowl. You know, we've got a couple of really, you know, brands like ours have a couple of really meaningful moments. Valentine's Day is really important. Mother's Day is really important. But the holidays trump all of that in a pretty material way. We we do, you know, approaching 40% of our business in the last two months of the year, which is not atypical for brands like ours. So there's a huge emphasis put on holiday push and thinking about how we want to communicate with customers, where we want to communicate with them. You know, promotion, we don't want to be a super promotional brand, but we recognize obviously that we call Black Friday Yellow Friday because our color is yellow and then Cyber Monday are impactful and the customer expectations are that they're going to get a, a, a some sort of value proposition. So we want to do it in a really thoughtful way and not in a way that that cheapens the brand. And I think that the marketing and merchandising teams have done a great job of that balance and creating high customer demand, real high value proposition, but without, you know, devaluing what we do. You mentioned more stores are coming in terms of what else growth looks like. You talked about um, much opportunity left in the States. Are you looking internationally also, and maybe more categories uh, in the jewelry sector and beyond? Yeah. Yeah. So we opened five stores already in 2023. We have seven more planned through the rest of the year. Um, We have, we, we launched a really meaningful wholesale partnership with Liverpool and Mexico uh, at the start of this year, and they've been tremendous partners. We've had businesses um, with Selfridges in the UK, but international expansions on the horizon for us. Uh, we just want to make sure that really the reason we've been kind of slow on it to some people's uh, equation would be that we wanted to make sure we had significant presences in the Northeast and the West Coast, you know, in major metropolitan cities before we opened up in Dubai or, you know, London or Japan. And I think we, we've now proven that point that the customer exists there. And the way that we wanted to enter international markets is through wholesale partners, the same way we started here in the U.S. And because it, it's, a, it's a known entity, right? Customers in Mexico City, no Liverpool. Customers in London, no Selfridges. And they're comfortable with the brands that are going to be associated in there. And it's just a, it's a lower barrier to entry, but 100% really important on the roadmap for us. Um, and the beauty is, I think, Back to the earlier, you know, the first point that you made about philanthropy and how important that is, it's important everywhere across the world, you know, not just in the United States. And I think what we can bring to different countries out there to help people that really need it, because there's people that need help all across the world, not just here in the United States. That, that's what we get most excited about as we think about how we grow the brand uh, outside, outside the U.S. Yes. What would you say is weighing on your mind right now in terms of a challenge? Keeping you up at night is what I like to say. <laughs> Well, uh, my kids, yeah. first and foremost, like, where are they? What are they doing? Is everybody <laughs> safe? I'm maniacal about that. Um, you know, I'm always worried about failing right? in, in every capacity in my life as a, as a dad, as a partner, as a, uh, you know, as a business leader, as, as a friend. So I think that's what keeps me up at night. I want to make sure that I'm not letting 
our shareholders down and not letting our employees down and not letting our customers down and making sure that we just always stay on the cutting edge of innovation in every way, right? On product innovation, on marketing innovation, on talent and retention innovation, on, you know, how we talk to our customers innovation. And I think that those are the things that keep me up at night. And I think what does not keep me up at night, and we talk about this a lot internally, is uncontrollables. You know, there's a lot of geopolitical and macroeconomic noise out there. I can't do anything about it. So I don't worry about it. Um, and I think, you know, they're distractions and we try to make sure that our, our team here is focused on the things that we can control, which is creating connections with our customers, right? Coming up with thoughtful ways to, to innovate, um, finding people that need help and helping them. Um, and if we focus on the things that we can control, you know, and I learned early on in my career, like, you know, output, effort and output equal success, right? So we stay focused on those sort of things. We're going to continue to be successful. I mean, a large company. Are you at the office? Or is, the, is everyone at the office? Is everyone in Austin? What's the, what's the deal? Yeah. I mean, we, we, right now, no, I'm not, I'm in, uh, I'm in the North Carolina mountains today. So luckily I'm here to escape some of the heat in Texas. It's like over a hundred degrees there. So I'm very happy not to be there, but uh, (laughs) more or less I'm in the office almost every day. Personally, I like being in the office. I like being around our employees. I like being able to mix it up with customers and, and people. I feel like I just have a greater, better sense of, you know, the pulse of our organization when I'm there. Um, We've always been flexible and I'll just, I'll make this point real quick because we talk a little bit about it internally, Jill, of, you know, there's a lot of conversation about work-life balance and, you know, uh, what is it, what are companies doing to create work-life balance and is our work-life balance the, the right mix at Kendra Scott and are we doing everything we can? And I, I, this isn't always a popular statement, but I'll, you know, I, I say it pretty confidently. Like it's not a, I don't think it's a company's job to create work-life balance. I think it's a company's job to create flexibility so that each person can find the balance that matters to them. And um, we've always been a very flexible organization. Like my life is not in balance. Like I definitely work more than what people would say is I'm out of balance there. But I've got a great, you know, I have a great support system here at home and children that understand that and those sort of things. Um, and I think, you know, what we, what we, so that we've always had to be flexible, right? We've had so many working moms here, right? And that, want to be able to pick up their kids or go to the sporting events. And, you know, now we've got working moms and dads and all sorts that we just, we want to provide flexibility. So the office, even through COVID, I mean, we had to shut down for a little while, but we always remained open and people that wanted to come there and be collaborative in a safe way could always do that. And even today we allow people to work remotely. Um, as long as you're getting what you need to get done, done. And I don't, I personally don't have a problem with it where you're doing it from is, and you just need to show up and be there for your team and showing up doesn't mean in person always. It just means, being there when somebody needs you. And we have, you know, we've always had, used to be just a sister rule because we were 99% female. Now I think we have a sister and a brother rule that you just, you treat people the way that you want to be treated and you're there for them and you show up and, and it works. So we, the office is open. Um, I like to be there just because I like to be there, but I don't feel obligated to be there and nobody at the company should. Right on. I like your style. <laughs> I was like, I need to read this founder's mentality, number one. And also I was going to ask kind of, your your top tip for somebody, I guess, in a newer to a company's top leadership role or C-suite, we would say. Anything else you would add on that? You, you, I liked what you were saying about, um, you know, it wasn't due unto others, but something to that extent. But anything else you would add there? Yeah, I, I'll tell you one other book that I, I really kind of shaped my life and I actually named, uh, named my fourth child after the book, but it's called The Way of the Shepherd. Uh, his name's Shepherd. Um, it just talks about servant servant leadership. It's a really easy read. It's quick read, and it it, it transformed 
me as a leader when I read it for the first time. And I've read it, you know, I read it probably once a quarter. And I've done that for about 15 years. Um, I, I think that the one piece of advice I would give to anybody kind of getting started was, <clears throat> you know, the most important people, I don't think people realize this until you get older and later in life. And a lot of times it's too late. And I've been fortunate. I think I've known it for a while. But the greatest currency that you have is time. You know, and you just got to be really protective and mindful of your time and how you utilize it and who you spend it with and who you waste it on um, and try to mitigate wasting it on people and really leaning into the people. And, and this goes back to the way the shepherd, like getting to know the people that work for you, like not in what they can do from an aptitude level, because hopefully everybody that works for you has a high aptitude level. Like get to know what motivates them personally. You know, some people are driven by money. Others are driven by time off. Others are driven by vacation. People are driven by recognition. And I think you just everybody's different. And I think, especially in today's world, you really have to understand what makes people tick and how, what, how they want to be communicated or even led and then lead them that way. And it's just, I don't think there's one flavor for everybody. I think you have to be really thoughtful and compassionate and, 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 and humble truthfully uh, as, be, as best you can. And, and, you know, do what you say you're going to do. Like drives me nuts when people say they're going to do something and then just don't show up. So I think those are the things that I've kind of lived by because, you know, I watched my parents do that. You know, and I'm the first person in my family to graduate from high school, but, you know, I just learned hard work and the value of family and time and doing the right thing. So All good notes to sell. Tom, thank you for being here. This was so yeah. enjoyable. I so appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. It was an honor. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.